Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In 2005, the sleepy community of Mineola, Texas, was thrown into turmoil when local children revealed shocking stories about a pedophilia sex ring that took place at a local swingers club. As arrests are made, life sentences handed down, and lives ruined, it soon becomes apparent that there's a lot more to this story than meets the eye. The film series is called How to Create a Sex Scandal. It's a three-part docuseries that will be premiering on HBO Max, or Max as we're now calling it, uh, as we speak, it is out on uh, HBO Max. We're joined today by the director and executive producer, Julian P. Hobbs, as well as the executive producer, Ellie, Ellie Hockamy. Uh, to both of you, welcome to Film School Radio. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Congratulations on this film. I love the way that it plays out. I love the way you structured the story. It is a really fascinating story. I guess my first question would be, going down to Mineola and finding out about the story in, in real time in your own from your own perspective. What was that like? What did you take with you on your on your initial visit to Mineola to find out what happened? I'm not sure who I should, I'll start with. Throw it to Ellie because there's actually a little bit of a preamble before we started filming that's critical to the origin story and that revolves around Texas Monthly, Mike Hall, a reporter, brilliant reporter at Texas Monthly, and and um, Ellie. So that was there's, there's um that's kind of the origin story of the project. Okay. Uh, yeah. Before we got to uh, to Mineola, we were you know as you you know thank you so much about appreciating the structure of the film and uh, one of the things that uh, we do at Talos, our production company, is that we produce uh, several three part limited series. Uh, six-part limited series, eight-part limited series. And so we're always on the lookout for a story that, without being manipulated, can carry a very in-depth narrative. So I was um, looking through Texas Monthly, and I'm a huge, huge fan of their true crime reporting. And I came across an article from Mike Hall, and it was called The Girl Who Told the Truth. And it was essentially about a young girl who at one point accused her parents and her sibling of bringing her into a swingers club. Swingers clubs are legal in Texas, along with her cousins who were also young at the time. It's actually her niece and her nephew who were very young at the time. The allegations were that they were performing sex acts for money. Obviously, this is probably the most horrific thing you can hear that a parent would do to their children. They were put away and the life sentences, the, the parents were. And but later, Gabby in this, you know, came forward in this article and she basically said that the memories that she had, she just couldn't piece them together and that she firmly believed that the accusations that she made against her family were false. And so now she was coming forward to basically recant her accusations and come forward and, and make an attempt to clear her parents' name. And I just was blown away by the story um, on multiple levels because one, how could this happen is the first question that comes to mind. Secondly, to see a young uh, woman, she was a teenager at the time and she was like eight years old when this ordeal started to happen, kind of stand up, speak truth to power and have the courage to do that on you know behalf of her parents, I thought was remarkable. 
And then the third thing, which is what you pointed out, which is that, you know, it was very clear that there was a narrative that could play out over the course of three hours that where we were able to take the viewer on a journey as if they were in the town and were a part of the community. And you hear the cries, you hear the outcries of the children, you're immersed into the mass hysteria, you're you're in the courtroom where people are, you know, just outraged and and have to bring justice against these people who could do such a horrific act to the children. But then later in the narrative, you find out that what you believed was true was maybe false. And so that was, I think, where we began the story. So that was kind of the foundation, I think. And we spoke to Mike Hall and we spoke to all the participants at, in depth before we went into the field. But then I think when we went into the field, I'll throw that to Julian because he definitely spearheaded all of our uh, execution in the field uh, across the narrative and just kind of what how that all transpired once he was on the ground. Yeah, well, well, Julie, be just before you, because because there's so many key people that need to to step forward and give their version of what happened in this, and I think a couple of them, Margaret or Maggie, would have would have been reticent, or some other people in the film. It would, it, I don't know how you would have gotten around it, and so it's important. And it, obviously, you establish the level of trust with everyone that we see in the film. Yes, and that's a delicate process. People's lives have been destroyed, um, transformed. Um, there's power brokers, there's people who don't have power. Um, you always want to, both for journalistic ethics and for good storytelling, be as inclusive as possible. So you reach out to everyone. Pretty quickly, the core players in the family signed up to be a part of the documentary, in part because of the importance of their relationship with Mike Hall, who had broke this story open. This was a very local story. He put it on the national stage. And, and we're talking about three articles that Mike Hall was actually at the third trial all the way back in 2008. And the articles went through three different articles up to 2018, the article that Ellie talked about. So their cooperation was a little easier. The authorities, so we're talking about the prosecutors, the DA's office in Smith County, and we're talking about the Texas Rangers. They refused to participate. They were invited to participate. I would posit that they have a lot to answer for if you watch the film. Um, and maybe that's why they didn't participate. They also have a lot of information that's not been revealed, has been suppressed, that that probably should see the light of day. And then there were other lawyers and secondary figures who were very crucial in the court case. And, you know, this is um, just to mention as a sidebar, this is such an interesting story because the court today is where all modern dramas play out. And this is like the strangest film you've ever seen in a courtroom, right? So uh, invoking that world, invoking what went on in that courtroom was a big part of making of the film, right? So we did get a very interesting local reporter. So we talked about the role of media. We talked about the role of power, the power of the DA, the power of the Texas Rangers. We talked about people who don't have power. These people were from the wrong side of the track. So we were really trying to build the blend of an alchemy of what it takes to create mass hysteria. Amazingly, after we had finished filming for about 14 days in Mineola, documenting people's story, and I returned to New York and Ellie and I began to get ready to go into edit, we had been in contact with Margie Cantrell, who's at the center of this story, who many have accused, and you should watch the film, as engineering this mass hysteria of brainwashing, taking control of these children's memories and turning them against their parents. I don't want to give too much away, but it was very important for her to speak her piece to this. 
about a month or two after we did the initial filming, she phoned us up and say, just before Thanksgiving, if you want to fly to California, I'll give you two days for an interview. And Ellie and I jumped on a plane and, and we did that. Margie believes what Margie believes. And we don't come out in this film and say from the very beginning, this is what you, the viewer, should believe. We allow it, and Ellie said it, to unfold in the way it unfolded in the town. And I will say this. I was there on Veterans Day, and I was down. There's a big parade, and I was just vox popping people on the street. I don't want to damn this town because the message here is this can happen anyway, right? A satanic panic, an outburst of this type of thing. This can happen in New York City. It can happen in London. So this is not about scapegoating a town but in that town to this day the majority of people believe that this crime did occur and these people were guilty and that justice was served the town is also culpable in the events that unfolded uh so so like takes a village takes a village to have a mass hysteria outbreak and that's really what went on here the the, the coordination of the authorities with mass opinion with the press with people from the wrong side of the tracks who were disempowered and suddenly we ended up this is kind of the teeing up of the story we told. But I'm glad Margie spoke because Margie has a right to, to tell her side of the story. And I'll leave it up to people to draw their own conclusions. But it was important. She was an important voice in the film. And we treated her with respect like we treated everybody else in the film. Yeah. And I think it's really important to understand the uh, the power of first impression. And I think the first impression for the people in that town was the allegation. First of all, I think for many of them, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the discovery that there was a sex club in their in their city limits. I don't know if that was one of those things that was known but not talked about, or really wasn't known. So you and but regardless of that, you had a sex club in town, which then leads you not very far leap to the idea that there's some really crazy shit going on. And so, so in a town that seems predisposed by its conservative nature to believe it. So is, am I overstating that? No, I, I mean, yeah. by the way, swingers clubs, I think I might've mentioned this are legal in Texas. Yeah. I think that part of it, I, and we touch upon this in episode one, I, I the, the community wanted it shut down and there was definitely a group within the community that, uh, you know, achieve that. Yes, I do think that speaking to how do we get to mass hysteria, I do think that that was the first seed that was planted. You have something in town that uh, many people believe is a place that is where sin happens, right, if you will. And so right there, if you are going to manipulate a, a narrative, that would kind of be the key spot, right? Because people already are coming to it with their assumptions of what might be going on behind closed doors. Again, you know, don't want to be too spoiler, but in the public's imagination, the outrage at the swingers club, of course, they're pedophiles. Like, so that leap that was made gets you down a slippery slope. And what was, who were these pedophiles? Well, they were the people living in the trailer parks. And what was going on in the trailer parks? They were training the kids in the trailer parks. So you're you're kind of tapping into a dark social unconscious of slippery connections. Of course, one of the big ironies is, as directly talked about by the owner of the Swingers Club, is that there were members of the local police and the Texas Rangers who went to the Swingers Club. There's nothing wrong or illegal about being a swinger. If you want to stir the pot with the right alchemy, you place kids in there and you say that they're being sexually abused and you really are lighting a fire. 
um, and that fire got out of control. Or I may say some of that fire got harnessed by those who are publicly elected officials who want to run on, we're fighting against the satanic swingers club and the pedophile ring. So then politics and power and And that now is politics. I mean, I don't know if it always was, but it's now definitely squarely in the realm of politics at this point. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Julian P. Hobbs, who is the executive producer and director, as well as Ellie Hackaby, who is the executive producer of this three-part docu-series that is currently running on Max. We used to notice HBO Max. It's currently Max. Streaming service is currently on, and it's called How to Start a Sex Scandal. Urge you to check this out. How to Start a Sex Scandal. Wonderfully done. An amazing story. I, entertaining may not be the word I I want I should use, but I, I feel like it is. It's entertaining for sure, but it's also in many ways mind blowing. Just because there's a lot of different twists and turns in it. The other thing about this, once these allegations are made, there's always this internal pressure within any community, and I'm not just singling out Mineola here. Any community would want action on the part of the authorities. That that's understandable reaction if in fact these things are true. Why, why are we wasting any time to prosecute these people? But there's also the, the impulse on the part of law enforcement to, especially when it comes to sex crimes, there is sort of an institutional momentum to make sure that we get somebody held accountable as soon as possible. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's, it's child sex crimes, right? Yeah. Like, I think yeah. that that is also part of it is that you know, there was children involved here. And so I think that that played a huge factor that these children were so young. And so, yes, I think people, the authorities, as well as the community wanted to see justice served and justice served quickly and the most extreme form of justice being served in this instance. And I, it, yes, I think that, be, it, and I do think it was because children are involved. They wanted that to happen very swiftly. And I want to get into the players now, because there are many, many interesting people in this film. We mentioned Margaret or Mar- Margie uh, Cantrell, the mom, also her husband, John, who plays, doesn't have a lot to say in the film, but he seems to loom over much of the, the sort of, some the story feels like there's a lot more that we don't know about John than we do. Is that being fair to him? I would say that's fair. We we should be clear that Margie and John have never been found guilty right. in law. But um, the allegations are many, including some people who didn't even ultimately make the film. So um, okay. multiple adopted children within the Cantrell, Cantrell household told us, alleged that there was systemic abuse occurring. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the kids involved, Jamie, I'm sorry, Shelby, uh, Hunter and Carly, the the adopted children of the Cantrells. Gabby, yeah, and Gabby, oh, yeah. yeah, and Gabby was never in the Cantrell house, but 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 uh, Margie Cantrell was in the um, interrogation room with her, and it, and it's just worth noting so we get the record straight that Hunter and Carly, um, like Gabby, have publicly uh, said that they that this did not happen, uh, that this was implanted in them, but Shelby has never come out publicly and made that statement. Okay. I guess my point in introducing these people into our conversation is that it provides us, it's just an incredible kind of uh, a recounting of the tale from their perspective. And they give, they give this sort of emotional heft to the film. 
One of the things that when we were talking earlier about, you know, what drew us to the the documentary and to the story and, you know, having the narrative that, you know, obviously was authentic, that could carry three hours. Um, th- that the set the second piece of it was that we were very struck by the interrogations were interviewed with the our participants at a very young age, and that as adults in their early twenties, they could now look back on themselves as young children and talk to us as adults. They are adults now, so they could speak to us, you know, just in a mindset that's much older, can, you know, reflect back, articulate things that they probably couldn't have articulated when they were five to eight to 10 years old and explain what was happening. And so that was critical for us and thinking that this is just remarkable that, you know, people can now understand what they were going through because they can tell us as adults what what was their experience as children. And, and I think that that's one of the things that makes this film incredibly um, rich and remarkable. And I just can't imagine at the ages that they were being questioned by a Texas Ranger and all of the stuff that went along with that, the, the enormity that even at that age, they had to under, at some level understand that this was pretty important. and And then to carry that with them for the rest of their lives until we meet up with them just kind of that the the emotional freight that you would be carrying around and we see that in the, the conversations that you have with them it's it's just hard to hard to fathom just yeah. kind of the internal dialogue they, they come across as as uh, deep souls and yeah. in a way older than their years yeah. uh, because they've had to face some harsh truths about a darker side of human personality um and i think to some degree the fact that they had their identity stolen, that they had memories implanted, memories that ultimately drove them to implicate their parents and send them to prison. Once you come of age, as Ellie said, and you gain an awareness of what's happened, and of course, they're seeking justice for their parents now. But what a tremendous, almost existential burden to carry about what it means to just be a human. Yeah, I mean, it's unfathomable to me, to know that I was partially, entirely responsible for putting my parents in prison. I mean, that's, I can't even, I I don't know. It's not in my realm of experience, uh, um, but uh, Ellie, is there anyone in the town, has this been screened for people in town or are they going to be seeing it on HBO Max or if there's been any reaction, how, how is that playing out? There's, um, they have, they will see the film tonight. Um, we have spoken to some of the people um, that were in the film and told them, you know, very frankly, how the film plays out because, you know, I, I think for, for, for them, you know, specifically Chantel and Sheila and, and, and Jimmy, I think that, that you know, they've re- they're rehashing this again. You know, that's probably not their favorite thing to do with this particular time of their life. Um, but they have the strength to do it and the courage to come forward with their story, which is, you know, hugely admirable. But I do think that they feel that from what they've seen so far that, you know, they're getting that their side of the story is being told and that they've generally been heard in a way that shows that one, they weren't, that that they were falsely accused of these crimes. And two, hopefully, I think, and this is where the children, I think this is where the kids' motivation lies, 
is that their names will be cleared. They still have this on their record. And in in fairness, and if justice was served, and you hear this in the film, that would be removed. And and in, and I think you know it's something that I hope that what this film does is make people take a hard look at why is it that they still have this stigma in their lives when they didn't do anything. Um, and hopefully they can get justice in, in one way or another. I mean, they, they lost in the courts. They now want to win in the court of public opinion. Yeah. And that's why they that's why they agreed to participate. Yeah. But again, I take something which is to say we're not, I, I look at it as whether it's Salem, whether it's, um, you know, Paradise Lost, I mean, I mean, whether it's the satanic panic or throughout history, these type of kind of things erupt and uh, those who are put in charge end up becoming the, the problem and perpetuating the issue. And so what's interesting is when you can get it in a little incubation yeah. place like Mineolans and kind of look at it and look at the alchemy of it. Um, but I think it's a um, it's 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 a larger lesson for us as humans versus a direct attack on East Texas. The people of East Texas are lovely. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. Oh. We're in the Yorkshire Dales. So people in the Yorkshire Dales are lovely. But you know what? Just 10 miles away from here was a site of gigantic witch hunts in the you know 16th century. It can happen anywhere. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so Thank much you. for the film. Yeah. This three-part documentary series is called How to Create a Sex Scandal. And we've been joined today by the executive producer and director, and that would be Julian P. Hobbs, as well as the executive producer, Ellie Hackaby. Thank you so very much for your time today. Thank you so much for this wonderful documentary series and for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate it. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.